to The Figure, a podcast about lifelong learning. In each episode, we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future, hosted by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Perfect new intro. Thank you so much. Great. (laughs) So we have, first of all, a bit of a podcast update. Um, Mm. We have already accidentally done this due to some technical issues and travelling arrangements. But the figure is going to become a podcast every other week rather than every week. And we also wanted to reiterate that it's a podcast about lifelong learning, which is something that we set out in our first episode, which was 41 episodes ago. I know, it's crazy. (laughs) But what have you been up to over the last two weeks? How was Japan? Japan was amazing. Well, I think with the episode every other week it may not be that way permanently but I think just at the moment that probably will work better um than doing every week because it's 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 been it's been a bit mad the last uh two months especially for me I'm really looking forward to the summer holidays which start on the 16th of August um but Japan was amazing um incredible I was there on a work trip Um, and was able to have a few days as well to sort of explore Tokyo. Um, We also went to Osaka and Kyoto, uh, which were both amazing. I wish we had had more time there, actually. Um, But it was was cool. It's so cool that you got to go to Japan for work. I'm just still... I'm still in shock because it seemed to come out of nowhere. Yeah. And then then suddenly you were off to Japan, and I was like, oh, wow, that's really (coughs) exciting. What did you learn about Japanese culture? that you didn't expect? Tokyo is absolutely huge. Tokyo is the largest city in the world. It has 38 million um, for its population. And there's about seven city centres, as it were. There's no centre. There's there's just loads of different ones. So it's pretty exhausting uh, actually navigating it. Um, whereas Osaka is like much more what you would ex- sort of envision... Tokyo to look like there's like a center and there's all the lights and all the all of that um and then Kyoto is beautiful it's sort of traditional Japan it's the old capital so Kyoto was the capital and where the royal family lived or the imperial family lived um and Tokyo literally means um west of the capital so Tokyo is west of Kyoto and Kyoto is a capital city um, the old capital so it looks like there's still geishas there it looks very traditional that's where all the Japanese prints come from um, I remember that from university it was an island mm, island like yeah. floating island of pleasure I think it translates to um, that is so cool yeah and what have yeah. you been reading um, and listening to while you've been away because that's a long flight it is a long flight I saw Bohemian Rhapsody finally I know. It was, was it an emotional roller coaster? Yes, it was an emotional <laughs> roller coaster. Um, absolutely brilliant. I mean, Rami Malek was, oh, he carried the film so well. And the chemistry between the band was so evident. And it's just, it's just really lovely to watch genius um, and that sort of talent, similar to when you're watching McQueen or stories about real people you just think wow we're so lucky to have experienced their art and their work and that we live in a time where so many millions of people can watch it and kind of experience it through something like cinema Mm, even though you obviously have to pay to go to the cinema and not everyone will be able to see it it's quite a democratizing way of sharing art and genius and culture and that is something that they talked about in this amazing documentary about the Beatles, which is called Eight Days a Week, that they were one of the earliest bands to do f- like cinema screenings of their songs and their work, and they made films and were involved in films, and that was a way of everybody who never got tickets to see them actually being able to experience that in a kind of stage format, which is so interesting. Absolutely. I've been obsessed with the Beatles, by the way, over the last two weeks. Since yesterday? Yeah. Oh, yeah, since watching yesterday, twice, I will probably go again. Yeah, me too. And I will be the first person to buy the DVD. (laughs) Although I really want to see... I'm, like, dying to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I don't know when it's out. I feel like it's later this month. But it's um, Quentin Tarantino's next film. Um, 
and I'm really excited to see that. I'm more excited about Lion King, which was amazing. Oh yeah, I haven't seen I I but I did see A Star Is Born. Finally, again. What did you think? I I mean, I finished it and the five minutes later I burst into tears. Yeah, that's what I did as well. Like Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper are absolutely Abs- phenomenal yeah. in that film. But the story blown away is so moving. They did that so well. I'm I was so impressed honestly, and they avoided, managed to avoid every single cliche that came along with romance film, rock, you know, rock music, addiction, you know, literally there's nothing cliche about it. It was, it was so raw. It feels so much deeper than that. Yeah. You can't put it into a category at all. Like, honestly, it's, I think it's one of those films that everyone should see. You know, whether you've had experience of relationships or addiction or whatever mm. it's just so important to, to definitely it. it was such a good film mm-hmm. mm. and something else that everybody should see and another of my obsessions over the last two weeks is queer eye which has become my favorite <laughs> thing on netflix has it really finally shah you <laughs> caught got on the bandwagon again who mentioned queer eye about two months three months ago <laughs> I don't remember you mentioning that actually. I don't remember actively resisting that recommendation. Oh, fair. Okay, okay fair. Um, okay, fair. I was introduced. The first person I remember introducing me to it was my godmother Sarah, and we oh, just right, both okay. agree that it is the most uplifting program you can ever watch. It's and brilliant. For anyone who doesn't know, it was actually um, first came out in two thousand and three as an original. Mm-hmm. That was when it originally aired, and then they revamped it, and Netflix created a new version. Um, with five gay guys and there is a guy who's like food and wine there's a guy who's grooming and hair there's a guy who's fashion there's a guy who's like culture and life coaching and Mm. there is a guy who is interiors and it's like a combination between Gok Wan's uh, How to Look Good Naked and 60 Minute Makeover that's so true and like sort of uh, Tony Robbins life coaching all in one fabulous package with like loads of hair flicking and loads of great totally great phrases <laughs> i just love it so much also i feel like it's tony robbins and you know why i know that it's because of our friend grant from Bali. <laughs> it's like grant though grant is really in queer eye he's very channeling <laughs> the energy yeah yeah he channels all of the personal development and positive vibes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm going to have to calm down. Okay. Um, okay, my other recommendations. I've been reading non-stop as well. Um, and the three novels that I would recommend for summer reading um, are How Do You Like Me Now by Holly Bourne, which is just yeah, the most really like, perceptive book about how... Mm-hmm. particularly women's minds work in today's age of social media. It's mad, isn't it? And mm. it's a basically about a novelist who's written a self-help memoir in her 20s and then becomes super famous off the back of it. But then it's about mm. what happens after that and the reality of her life versus what she's putting out on social media and the like breakdown of her relationship. And it's just so well-written and so funny. It makes mm. you kind of laugh and cry in yeah. equal measure. I think I read so. it in like three days. Like it was like one of those books. We yeah, just, me too. Yeah, so easy to read. Yeah, that was my train journey, sorted. Um, Never Greener, another one that I have not stopped reading, uh, which is by Ruth Jones, who wrote Gavin and Stacey. And Jojo Moyes sums it up really well. She's the author of Me Before You, that you feel so deeply for every single character in this book. And it is so compelling and the symbolism and the kind of everydayness of it is just so easy and beautiful to read, but cuts really deep. So I'd really recommend that as well. And it's set in Edinburgh, which is always lovely. Um, And I'm currently reading Sweet Sorrow by David Nichols, who wrote One Day, which is another book that I've reread recently and would highly recommend anyone who hasn't read it or even if you had, reread it. But it is is about Charlie Lewis, who is a 16-year-old who falls in love um, for the first time and he's involved in this rendition of Romeo and Juliet that he does not want to be involved in at all but the only reason he's there is because he is totally obsessed with the girl who is playing Juliet so it's like a combination of Shakespeare and 90s teenage love 
Yeah. It's really good. MSN, basically. Well, no, it's very much pre-MSN. Oh, really? So there's no technology in it, which I really like, because it's, it's sort of like a... It's quite escapist in that way. The first figure this week is Stella McCartney, who is a fashion designer and of course the daughter of the very famous uh, Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. Um, I just want to say, like, I know this is about Stella McCartney, but I just want to say that Linda McCartney is amazing and (laughs) her products have gone, (laughs) like, they've become mainstream, which is amazing in this sort of rise of vegetarianism and veganism. So mainstream. And it took me quite a long time to connect the dots. I really didn't realise that they were all part of the same extraordinary family and her sister sounds incredible as well mary mccartney um a photographer she she grew up on an organic farm in sussex um because i think linda mccartney and paul mccartney their sort of aim was to raise their children with the idea that we kind of all live on planet earth and we all share planet earth and we all look after it um and after that she was born i think the year the beatles split up it was the year after Um, it was 1971 Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney, her parents, formed their own band called Wings. So she spent a lot of her early childhood on tour. And met very many cool people, quite a few of... Loads. Quite a few of which are featured in her brilliant Desert Island disc. And yeah. it's it's just so extraordinary. It's similar to Emily Evis, actually, who's the... Um, she now runs Glastonbury, and her Desert Island disc recently came out. It was such an interesting listen. so good. But both of them talk about how almost every song they've met or they've got some sort of memory associated with that particular musician. So everything from, like, David Bowie to, obviously, Blackbird by Paul McCartney, which was about the civil rights movement, which I had no idea about until listening to her Desert Island disc. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Apparently she started making clothes herself when she was 13 years old. And it was a pink jacket. That that Desert Island disc is so good. I would recommend anyone listen to it actually it's it's brilliant my favorite part is right at the end not to spoil it for everyone but her luxury item is a uh, charm bracelet that i think was given to her by her husband um and it has charms that represent sort of lots of different things in her life and her children and like her horses she's always been very like outdoorsy loves nature and that's a really important part of her life and it was just so personal and special and she brought it along with her and you can hear it kind of jangling in the background of the recording which is really nice but on her fashion career so she did her first piece when she was 13 then went to central st martin's and her grad show featured naomi campbell and kate moss as the models who were her very good friends, um, but also, like, supermodels at the time. And so, obviously, that made all the headlines and her first foray into fashion, I guess, her first big exhibition was very much talked about in the media. But she talks in that Desert Island Disc about how difficult it was to grow up as the daughter of somebody who was so incredibly world-famous and how she'd often change her surname or try to leave it out of the conversation. I think a lot of people must do that with very famous parents. And you also be prone to so much criticism because of what you're doing. I don't know, people probably conflate your success with actually who your parents are and I just don't think that's necessarily fair. It's difficult to forge a separate identity. Totally. But she did but she has said but she has said though that that meant that she was able to take that leap because she knew that, she, you know, financially she was fine. She had famous parents. Mm, that's true. And it didn't matter if what she was doing wasn't as successful as she planned. And I remember that when she became the head designer at Chloe, the person that she was taking over from said a very snide remark, which was that he hoped she was as talented as her father. It was Karl Lagerfeld. Yes, it was, yeah. And it was just such a backhanded compliment. It just felt so, like, oh, belittling. And she was only 25, I think, when she took that over. That's a lot of responsibility for such a young... at such a young age, actually. Massive responsibility. Yeah. And then I think her next project after that was setting up her own fashion house, which is Stella McCartney, and has now been running for more than 20 years. And with that, I feel that she was channeling what her mother had stood for in terms of sustainability, vegetarianism... 
the way that you look after the planet in the right from the beginning she refused to use leather animal products fur feathers and that was just so trailblazing nobody would ever have thought of cutting out those huge components of fashion at the time that she set it up because now that's Everyone wants to get onto that bandwagon. Um, but she has got b- been under a lot of criticism for the price point of her. She does. And people, I think, I think it's because it's the same thing with veg- vegetarian or vegan food, actually. Like, people don't see it as, I don't know, like, food that's the same as meat or fish in it, and therefore it should be worth less, or it's not to the same standard. And I think that's probably true in the sentiment of her clothes. But actually, she's just like any other design label. But also, she's in a different market. I think that to criticise her for not making it for everybody is just... That's not what she's going for. She's a fashion designer, and she's grown up learning how to make couture. That's the industry that she's in, and it's actually... The fashion industry, I feel, is sort of split into those different sections and she's standing for what she believes in in her specific luxury section. Because what I love about what the way that women talk about her clothes is how they're completely timeless. Yeah, and, totally. And also that she's not a fast fashion luxury brand in the slightest and that she is delighted when she sees someone who's got a bag of hers that is 10 years old or a pair of shoes that came out 15 years ago, and they're still wearing them. And that's what, that's also, it's what all fashion should be about, but I think particularly luxury fashion, when you're paying such a massive amount, it's an investment, not only for you, but sometimes for your daughter, and your daughter's daughter, that's how it should be. Well, yeah, and and she's definitely made her brand a part of that. Um, And I just think it's so interesting now, we're looking at Senna McCartney and everyone sort of, getting on this bandwagon of sustainability and she had been there the whole time. I mean, that's that's awesome. And there's no way that she would have necessarily have been able to predict that. Um, I also find really cool that she, I think, started working with Adidas in 2004 um, and then partnered with them in 2012 to make the Team GB Olympic outfits, which were... So cool. ...really good. And it was the first time that we'd ever had a unified outfit and sort of uniform across the entire Team GB team. Oh, really? I didn't know. I think it had such a huge psychological impact on bringing Mm. every single British athlete who was competing in the Games together because they all had that sense of kind of community and collective pushing themselves and supporting each other together. Just, I think, clothes and your image and what you're putting on can make such a massive difference to how you feel. Definitely. Um, And she's also collaborated with H&M and Target and Gap. There's loads of things that she's done um, at just outside as a sort of the luxury um, brand. I think it's brilliant what Stella McCartney is doing. And I think she also works very closely in the Linda McCartney Company and the Linda McCartney Foundation. Who do the, like, veggie sausages, by the way. I've just realised that we've been talking about how amazing... I didn't explain it. Yes, veggie sausages, burgers, like... And they've become so, like... Oh, they're, they're quite mainstream. Their price point isn't too high. It's quite good. My Edinburgh corner shop sells Linda McCartney sausages. Yeah. I found a corner shop in the middle of Penzance in, like, in the middle of nowhere and having to go to this barbecue and I just thought, oh my God, there's going to be nothing for me to eat and they had them there in a random place. Um, And I think that the work they're doing is very relevant to now Um, and and in terms of sustainability. And this is quite off topic, but I saw um, a segment on the news today. They were talking about sustainability and they were saying that having one less child could be one of the best things that we could do in terms of sustainability for the planet. We'll come on to that with our third figure um, in relation to Prince Harry's... Oh, yeah, I guess that is relation to Mm. Prince Harry. Um, Yeah. But just going back to her heritage, so we've covered kind of Linda McCartney and the sustainability side, but what's interesting is that she's recently brought in more of what her dad represented in her most recent collection, which is called All Together Now. And it was inspired by a yellow submarine showing, which I think is a documentary. And it was all of her friends and family, just cousins, extended family, everyone there together watching it. And she sort of remembered how creative the Beatles had been and how imaginative and this like childlike element of 
things like Octopus's Garden and Yellow Submarine. And the beauty of these lyrics that is just all about, like, love bringing everyone together, let it be, I could go on. There's... I know. Again, still relevant 60 years later. And just from these four guys from Liverpool who didn't have any... any Nobody expected anything of them. And yet, look at where they got to and how... It's it's so interesting because their lyrics, they're really simple lyrics and they're short songs, yeah. but the the harmonies just work beautifully and they just are catchy and like uplifting and just raw and truthful and there's something that just carries you, everyone, when you listen to them. And so she's tried to put this into the collection and it's really gorgeous, very bright, colourful, and tries to carry that sentiment through of all you need is love in clothes. (laughs) Um, There was a gorgeous interview that she did with Sophie Haywood, who is a journalist I had the great pleasure of meeting, and she was someone who just totally owned the room, but in a very modest and humble and hilarious way. Um, And she's interviewed all sorts of big superstars including Stella McCartney and she talks about how all of her stores are powered by wind power and it's all sustainable energy um, that goes into her more than 50 stores I think Um, and how the store on Oxford Street has some rocks in it that come from the Mull of Kintyre which is a place in Scotland and she called so Stella called up her dad um, and was like, Dad, can I have some rocks? Like, I really, this is really important. I really want them in my shop. <laughs> um, and it's kind of bringing that like element of nature and childhood and what makes you feel like you belong. And I think that that's whenever I've listened to interviews with her, I loved her interview with Goop um, for with Gwyneth Paltrow. That was such a good interview. That was really good. They both actually were. In, it was almost like they both interviewed each other. Actually, yeah. I've also gone on a huge um, kind of stream through Goop since then and loved Dax Shepard. Finally got round to listening to that. Thank you. That's <laughs> another one to the list. <laughs> so many Sorry, I'm going to stop being smug. I'm going to stop being smug. It's, it's no, you can totally be smug. You know so much more about so many things than I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not true. Um, <laughs> um, But yeah, I just thought all those details that were covered in the interview were great. And at the end, Stella sort of comments on what Sophie had turned up in and how it was a kind of vintage patchwork um, jacket and what that represents and the sort of well-worn, like, friendliness of something that is sort of vintage and and has been worn for a really long time. So she can sort of add Mm. symbolism and psychology to an outfit, which I think is really key because so much of what I see on the catwalk, Mm. it just doesn't seem to have enough depth to it. I don't know what it stands for, and I think that's what makes it really special when it comes to Stella McCartney. The second figure that we're going to talk about today is that by 2024, 5G connection will cover 40% of the world. So for anyone who doesn't know, 5G is an upgrade of 4G, as I understand it, and... While 4G was built primarily with mobiles in mind, 5G is built not only with mobiles in mind, but also with things like smart homes, robots, um, Virtual lots reality. of like, yep, AI equipment. So it's kind of extending beyond to all of that sci-fi stuff that we've been reading about for years. Driverless cars as well. So 5G is the way that think this is going to be enabled. Um... And there's kind of a battle at the moment because ultimately one company is going to control the coverage. And there was a great episode of The Daily. Um, Did you listen to that, obviously? No, I don't. I mean, I haven't. Oh, my God, you didn't. I think this is the first time that I've listened to an episode of The Daily that you haven't. Yeah, because the last week, I haven't had time when I've been in Japan. So I have like a lot of episodes I haven't listened to. So I'm really proud that you've listened to it. (laughs) Well, it's a great one. And um, it's titled something like, Whoever Controls 5G Controls the World. Mm-hmm. So Huawei is a Chinese company, and they helped build 3G and 4G, which is the previous internet and the generations. Um, and they want to be in control of 5G, but America and Britain and lots of parts of Europe are very concerned that having a Chinese company control 
that kind of internet would also mean that they could control communication and there would be a security issue around that. Well, yes, I mean, and Donald Trump has essentially disabled Huawei from updating its phones in the US because of that reason. Um, I think that it's important to highlight the difference between 4G and 5G, just just for context. Um, so 5G is going to be 150 times faster than 4G. And essentially, the reason that it can be faster is because the way it operates is through larger numbers of small cell stations located more locally. So that will be in roofs, light poles, um, and at very high speeds. So instead of having like a centralized location to another centralized location, it's literally like small jump to small jump to small jump, like house to house to house. Um, and the, the reason for this is because we will actually be able to have real t- more real-time interactions so that for things like you said with AI with virtual reality um, you can download I think it said this, there was some crazy stat that it, you can download like 800 high definition Netflix movies in the time that you would be able to download one over 4G wow. um, but it does mean that it's more susceptible to interference from buildings weather um, it's kind of like a little bit less reliable in that sense Mm. um and also there's because of this higher number of kind of stations there is a concern over the health risk and implications of this Mm. because it's so new it's so kind of untested because we don't know what the implication is going to be and you can't test it on humans because you can't have like a control group who've never been exposed to wi-fi unless Mm. i don't know they lived so remotely but it's just so difficult Mm. to actually come up with an experiment that would test that but what is interesting is that 230 scientists and doctors um, and other experts have signed a a sort of appeal to the world health organization saying that 5g should be moved from group 2b in terms of being carcinogenic to group one which would put it alongside arsenic and asbestos so wow. they think is that, that that Glastonbury about that Glastonbury article that you were yeah asking? yeah it was yeah, so yeah. um yeah the Glastonbury article was interesting as well because that was again kind of an unasked for experiment on lots of the people who went to Glastonbury in that they trialed 5g at the festival and they want to have a kind of rural first approach with 5g I guess they're trying to be more inclusive of people who don't live in big cities and have really fast internet already um but lots of people were quite upset about that that no one had a say in it they just put all the masks up and they were like great 5g is a great thing but there are questions over how that could impact your health yeah i guess we don't know do we we don't know what the health implications are no we really don't because there's loads of radiation all around us like the sun and uv rays and and tv and radio those are all electromagnetic kind of waves and radiation and we just don't know what the implications are it's sort of the same thing with genetic modification foods that's been other technology that Mm. where it's all new and you just can't really know what the long-term mm, impact is going to be and also i mean we've now got boris johnson as prime minister and one of his main aims is to you know make britain as linked up as japan as south korea as uh, you know china as america um which it should be i mean he's right like when you go for, for example having just been in japan like everywhere has wi-fi that works perfectly like you don't even need your phone to be on like phone mode you can literally just go on wi-fi everywhere and Britain isn't really the same in that respect, and we should be, given that we have that. Um, but that's his definitely going to be his goal, is to make Britain like that, and he will use 5G, I'm sure, in order to have us kind of compete. It's also incredibly expensive. Um, Deloitte estimate that the US has spent somewhere between 30 and $150 billion on it. My gosh. Yeah, which is mad. Wow. The other the other crazy thing that I was reading about was an article by Hannah Boland, and she was talking about remote surgery that could happen over 5G. 
So you would essentially have robots operating on patients and they'd be controlled and kind of surveyed and overseen by doctors who would be working remotely. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You can do a lot of things remotely now on, on 5G. You're, you can, like, because virtual reality will be in real time. So it's actually, you can, as efficiently as you could speak to someone in person, you could speak to them in, in virtual reality on 5G. So it will change a lot of how we interact with people and what the world will look like. I'm very interested to see what, what the progression is. Yeah. Have you seen Years and Years? No. Okay. I was, I'd recommend watching it. I've only watched the first episode. Um, I've had it recommended to me, actually, as well, so I should yeah, take a look Yeah, it's at got that. Emma Thompson as a playing a politician who's sort of a hybrid of all the extreme politicians that we've got at the moment. Um, and they've got really weird things like your Snapchat filters can go over as a projection on your face. So people sort of walk around with these like virtual masks, which is really bizarre. And they have this huge problems with China and nuclear energy. Um, and obviously everything is all totally connected in terms of the internet. But it's quite a scary world that they're depicting, especially because it's very close and very plausible. And we've got Trump in for a second at a time. Um, we've got Brexit that's gone through and it's it's sort of a bit close to the bone. Like It's quite uncomfortable watching because it is such a world in turmoil that is not too much of a further leap from where we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that world will be so interesting to look at. I, I, I would love to go back in time and see the world on the cusp of loads of big changes after kind of the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution... Um, I suspect it's not as seismic as this one. But at the time, it probably felt like it. Exactly, it probably did. and we'll prob- hope- I don't know what the world will be like in 100 years, but maybe mm. we'll look back and think, gosh, everyone freaked out unnecessarily. I don't know. I'm always trying yeah. to be um, positive about not this positive. sort of thing because everyone doesn't seem to be at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be negative on this one as well. The other thing I've been watching recently is The Great Hack, which is a documentary by Cambridge Analytica, Um, the data company that's just come out on Netflix and that is another one which is very eye-opening and I don't really understand how the whole data hacking, collecting, targeting world works but it does feel Mm. quite scary when you've got like Huawei and companies in China who have control over certain communication channels or potential control and then when I learn more about how they can use data to influence voters and all of that is just it feels very like manipulative oh it's mad and China will have control of everything especially if 5g especially with 5g it's 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 kind of yeah it's very frightening it is but hopefully we will live through it (laughs) let's end on a positive note yes figure that we will be looking at this week is the September issue of Vogue magazine uh, which has been guest edited by the Duchess of Sussex and it is called Forces for Change or the image is of uh, 15 women um, who have been changing the world Um, and I absolutely loved looking at all the women who were included um, including like Adwa Abodet Aboa, um, absolutely love her podcast. Girls Talk, right? Girls Talk, so good. Jacinda Ardern, um, Prime Minister of New Zealand. Jamila um, Jamil. Jamila Jamil. She's an activist and, and actress. Totally. Um, Gemma Chan, um, Jane Fonda, Salma Hayek. I mean, it's awesome. Sinead Burke as well um Greta Thunberg as well super that was really cool anyway so this cover was sparked oh my god the backlash it has received has been unbelievable and what's sad is if we had removed Meghan Markle from the equation of editing it it would have been probably thought of as a fantastic cover very revolutionary um but instead it's pretty much been made out as cliche it's been slammed particularly by um sarah vine of the daily mail and piers morgan yeah but they're always going to slam it though both of them 
I know, I know. But it's obviously been wider than that. Mm. Um, why do you think it has caused such a backlash? I think two reasons. First reason is uh, the impression that the media have of Meghan at the moment, which is of someone who is trying to be um, private in a way that's almost causing more hurrah than what what it would have been had they just let the public into say Archie's christening their lives or, in a yeah. yeah in a similar way so the christening um the godparents name the name of their dog um god i mean not seeing not knowing where Archie was born until a few days afterwards all of that sort of thing um and then the other thing is i think that they don't like um just the fact that Megan I mean, Sarah Vine and Piers Morgan try to sort of put the argument forward that she's not pro-Britain, and actually there are hardly any British women um, on the cover of Vogue, and the Queen is not on Vogue. As one of the 15 forces for change, yeah. Yep, and actually she should be pro-Britain, that's her role in um, in the royal family. Um, So there's kind of two, two main criticisms there, and... What I find kind of annoying <laughs> is that all of this stuff about the privacy and the privacy of her and the baby, and it's all Meghan, 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 Meghan. When actually we think about Harry, Harry is the son of Princess Diana. Harry was so badly affected by her death and was so passionate about new laws coming in place to protect people who are famous and to prevent this sort of thing happening again and yet we don't really consider that actually it's probably him that's making all of these privacy initiatives for their son Mm. and that it's just protection yeah and and also i think they didn't seem they have always been more private which i think is perfectly their right as human beings um i really don't by the argument that they're public figures and they're sort of paid to be public, I think that you can find a balance where they're comfortable with what's shared and with what's kept to themselves. Um, But I think that also if you think back to how the media reacted to the engagement and then the run-up to the wedding where they were just sort of stalking her dad and splashing all sorts of things about that, maybe one of the reasons that they haven't shared the godparents' names is in order to protect the people that they've chosen. Oh, most definitely. Because it's just, it's such it's such a whirlwind, and why do you want to whip everybody else up into it? I think that they're actually shouldering a lot more than could something that could be spread amongst many more people because they really care about the people that they've chosen and that are in their lives. And I think it's a really good decision to keep things back. But it's like a lose-lose situation it because is. I think the media have decided that they don't like her yeah. and therefore she can't do anything right. Definitely. But, you know, at the same time, William and Kate are also very private. I mean, think about it. We know nothing about their personal lives at all. And yet they seem to have portrayed this kind of relaxed image that they allow the press to have certain photos of the children and they come to the christening and they've actually managed to be fair William and Kate have managed that situation so well because we know we don't again we don't know the ins and outs of their lives in the slightest but yet we have the appearance like we do which is kind of interesting um with Meghan and Harry I think he wrote a very interesting point about this sort of unconscious racism and unconscious bias and when you have a cover like that which is predominantly women of color and they're women and it's guest edited by Megan I mean yeah it's gonna get a lot of backlash yeah it shows how ingrained certain like racism and misogyny is that people don't even necessarily realize no not at all it's the unconscious element of it and it's the intersections of someone's identity so that if you are um if you're more of the default say you're male white straight cisgender you will have kind of inherited privileges and you don't even know that doors are open for you that's a kind of way of like looking at it. And I think that when you add in lots of those intersections that are not the default, 
in that you are a person of colour, that you're female, that you are trans, that you're LGBTQ+, then you get kind of layers of backlash. And it's, it's just, it's very upsetting that we still have those opinions that are so rife and that then social media can become this way of putting out such nasty comments and opinions mm. and that it can sort of spread like wildfire through that. Totally. And also, it's not that she's saying that these are the only f- women who are forces for change, it, ever. It's just it's just highlighting 15 of them. Um, yeah. And <laughs> what I really love is that there's a 16th square, which is um, supposed to be a mirror, so it's meant to be the person who's obviously looking at this issue, um, or whoever picks it up, and seeing that they can also be activists, stand up for women, humans everyone and really make be forces for change themselves i feel like that mirror is a cliche like that does make me cringe a bit but it's a good cliche but but it is cringeworthy <laughs> if you know it is I mean. but <laughs> but it's sort of like is there any other way of no of communicating I mean, that message without no it's it. a great way again if it wasn't if, if she her name this is what's so sad is if her name was not on as guest editor, we'd all think it was a great cover. And by we, I mean the British media who are criticising her. Or they wouldn't have an opinion, they'd just go, oh, it's another Vogue cover, fine. It's because she's put her name to it that everyone's going, ah! And and it's also the first time that anyone has ever guest edited this September issue of Vogue, which is considered to be the most important issue of the year. And the way that it became about, which is quite interesting... Um, is that the editor-in-chief, who's called en- Edward Ennifil, um, he asked Megan to be the cover of Vogue September, and she came back and she said, could I be the guest editor? And I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of this edition, because not only is the cover fascinating, and in cl- cliche in some ways, but also stands for something bigger than that, Um, The interviews within it sound fascinating. So there's Prince Harry interviewing Jane Goodall. um, And there is, I imagine, profiles of the 15 different women who are featured on the cover. Um, But the final interview, which is normally a QA, and a and it is a QA, and a but it's with Michelle Obama. Yeah. And that is available to read online, actually, on the Vogue website. And she talks about motherhood... um, the advice she'd give to her daughters and how that you can... It's okay to swerve. I love this phrase. That you don't have to follow the prescribed path and that you can just carve your own. Um, And she talks about Girls' Opportunity Alliance, which is the initiative that she and Obama set up. Um, And she talks about... This is my favourite part. So this is the last question. And she says... um, what is your favourite sound? The most beautiful sound you ever heard? And she answers this. So, when Malia and Sasha were newborns, Barack and I could lose hours just watching them sleep. We loved to listen to the little sounds they'd make, especially the way they cooed when they were deep in dreaming. Don't get me wrong, early parenthood is exhausting. I'm sure you know a thing or two about that these days. But there is something so magical about having a baby in the house. Time expands and contracts. Each moment holds its own little eternity. I'm so excited for you and Harry to experience that, Megan. Savour it all. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. And Mm. it must have been a really interesting experience for Megan to be editing this while she was pregnant, knowing that when it came out, she would have a three-month-year-old baby. And that sort of gestation period of of not knowing what the world would be like when he was there and all this change and just turbulence. She must know the the effect it will have, right? I'm I'm so curious as to what she thinks when she you know reflects on it. On one hand I feel so I have so much empathy that it, that it must feel awful to think that you're this sort of target of all this hatred, but what they're actually targeting isn't her personally. It's the idea of race and the idea of female empowerment. And she's just kind of embodying that. Um, Because actually, if she was just a very silent... um, Not silent, that's reductive. But if she was just more traditionally compliant to what they think the British royal family should be, I don't think they'd have that much of a problem with it. You know, I feel like we all all watched the royal wedding and were very happy with it there is no there's no damsel in distress princess 
airy fairy about Meghan Markle, and I love her for it. I do. Th- I think the turning point, though, and I'm not thinking about this now, was the 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 idea of the ce- American celebrity. I think that that doesn't help her. Um, and you know, when the baby shower, and there was this sort of like ten million pound private jet, and all of these sort of people get very angsty about money. Stars. Money and is always a sore spot, but mm. the the sort of price tags of everything get really banded about. And I do agree that it seems ridiculous to spend like three million pounds on your renovation of your house when that is taxpayers' money. That kind of sickens me. But again, it's it's just I think it's a shame that we're fixating on certain information that we have and like grabbing it and then ignoring other things. Totally, totally. And the issue is that they, they can spend £3 million on the house. I mean, they're the royal family. I mean, they can literally do what they want. But don't act holier than thou. I think that's what the British public find annoying. I'm not necessarily saying that's my opinion, um, but I think they pick up that vibe of, you know, being more private, Look, talking about all sorts of, quote-unquote, woke concepts. And everyone's just like, well... But you're but you're spending you know you're you're actually spending millions on on all sorts of things. I mean, she was criticised again in the press for using a muslin cloth um, that was actually made in a Nepalese sweatshop, I believe. Um, so, you know, again, I don't believe in you know people say this to me all the time about being veggie, and you know, I'm like, say I'm veggie, and the next minute I'm being criticised for every absolutely every piece of leather I own. Um, so it's not about you know, no one is perfect 100%, but that's where the confusion comes out of, out of I think. Mm. What this makes me think of is Brené Brown's extraordinary Call to Courage Netflix talk. And she says something that has resonated so deeply with me, that she says, if you are in the cheap seats and you're not in the arena, I'm not interested in your opinion. Like You've got to be in the arena getting falling down, standing up for what you believe in, failing and standing up, failing, standing up, failing, standing up, then if you're in the arena, then you can have an opinion that actually is going to be valued and listened to. But if you're just up there on your, like not doing anything and you're just throwing insults down at people who are actually making a change and that everyone's going to make mistakes, like it's not going to be perfect, but at least she's standing up and doing something. No, I completely agree. Then I... It's just, it's so... I know. It's, it's like the same old boring thing. It's like they just But this love is what I mean. It's a, fe- it's a woman and it's someone of colour. It's like, mm. that, that's always going to be, like, the most targeted mm. individual. Mm. Um, and also, the problem with the people in the cheap seats is they have a vote. So they also will and be voting and they will also have opinions and they have Twitter and they have all mm. this sort of thing. So... Although there have been some great um, women that I follow who've been really standing up for her on tw- on Twitter, including Nimco Ali, who has written a brilliant book recently, which we'll talk about um, in a future episode. Um, and obviously there are lots of people who are supporting her and who think it's a fantastic um, thing that she's created. But it's a shame when the criticism is much louder than the praise. Yeah, I feel like it will be with her, though, for a very long time. Unfortunately, it's interesting to watch though, it's interesting to look at as a cultural shift and also the comparison to Kate Middleton a lot. Oh, they love to compare, right? But you know, again, love to compare women always, it's always women, um, always a competition, always a comparison, and and that's what this Vogue cover is supposed to be standing against that you're supporting other women, shining a light on what they've done, bringing each other up. Yeah. And including everybody. Mm. So I don't understand how that message has <laughs> has made people angry. It's just I know, but we I have Trump in, we have Trump in the White House and we have a lot of r- racial immigration undertones associated with Brexit that d- demonstrate that actually that is a wide spread view. Um and we have a lot of right-wing people in government that also reflect that so it's not surprising that we have the criticism to be honest one final question what did you think of her un speech that she did several years ago now but it was talking about the letter that she wrote to hillary clinton um, when she saw a unilever advert and it said women all over america are fighting greasy pots and pans or something like that 
and she wrote a letter to Hillary Clinton and she managed to get Unilever to change it from women to people. What did you make of that speech and that kind of early example of, I guess, activism? Yeah, no, I think it was brilliant. I mean, I think that she should continue to do that. I think her marrying into the royal family has probably hindered hopefully temporarily, her ability to make speeches like that. It will be interesting to see what she does going forward because there have been rumours that there are discussions of her having a Vogue column, which would be an interesting development. Quite a public thing to do. Very different. Yeah, very different. Very, But they are different. They're not in line to the throne. They're not going to ever have a throne. Like they don't, They don't need to be... They don't have to be the same as William and Kate... So, you know, it'd be good. And also doing a clothing line yeah. with M&S, which should also be an interesting collaboration. Definitely. It'll be good to see what happens. I mean, it's, it's, so, mm. it's so important to see yeah. this play out because actually culturally this is what's happening. We need to talk about this. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. We will be back in two weeks' time. Um, with a brand new episode and as always you can contact us via email at the figurepodcast at gmail.com instagram and twitter we always love to hear from you and um, we're excited to be back and have a kind of new schedule so i'm excited also the next time you hear us i will be even more excited because i will be about to be on our summer holiday together and we'll actually be together. We'll yeah, be I in know. the same room, which I is know. so exciting. Exactly. I can't wait. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.